In the fall of 2014, I was in graduate school for a degree in social work. And for my field placement, I was assigned to a jail-based program on Rikers Island. The first day I was to go there, I took a crowded F train into Queens and then got on a dilapidated Q100 bus, which lurched its way through 50 minutes of local stops before approaching its inevitable terminus. Hazen Street turned into the Rikers Island Bridge, and as the bus zipped over the East River, I adjusted my floral button-down shirt and smoothed down my freshly braided hair. Despite having never been to a jail before, I thought I knew what to expect when I arrived at Rikers. As a social work student, I was concerned about state violence and the deficiencies and institutional failures baked into the American criminal justice system. I had trained in jail protocol at the Department of Corrections administrative offices in the weeks prior. And I had studied the typical case histories of the detainees and inmates I would soon be working with. Overwhelmingly, people coming from backgrounds of poverty, victimization, addiction, and few choices. The reality was, of course, that I knew so little. I did not yet understand that incarceration is somehow something worse than the sum of its parts. I could recite that the simple definition of incarceration is locking a person in a cage, but I could not describe what it's like to witness it, body and soul. When I got off the Q100 and saw the graying white paint of the complex's entrance building for the first time, I started to feel the enormity of my unknowing. I lingered on the steps before the building's double doors, apprehensive not so much of the smell of dust, bleach, and old linoleum coming from within, as much as this pervasive sense of evil that seemed to be radiating out of the ground. I turned around and looked back over the bridge and fixed my eyes on the Empire State Building. I've always loved seeing this central flourish in the Manhattan skyline's opulence from different parts of New York City, while crossing Fifth Avenue in Harlem, from rooftops in Astoria, during cab rides on the West Side Highway. The Empire State Building was still within my sights from Rikers Island, but somehow it had never seemed so far away. Now, I had rarely been inside a Catholic church in the previous seven years and prayed even less often. I wasn't pushed out of the church. I hadn't left out of anger about homophobia or misogyny or racism or sex abuse. Somehow as a teenager, my sense of where God was just slipped away from me. The way I had been taught to worship and be faithful was ineffective at connecting me with God and keeping a spiritual focus in my life. Looking back now at those seven years, I feel that God was being patient with me as I began to find my way in this world, coming out as a lesbian, moving to America, meeting the woman who is now my wife, all the while inattentive to how God was there with me through it. Arriving at Rikers though, I had hit the ceiling on things I could get through without actively calling on God's help. 
As I crossed the threshold from the civilian world through the gates and the checkpoints and the scanners into the jail, the professional experience I had embarked on set in motion a profound personal change. I learned a lot that year about human depravity and human suffering and the corrupting nature of power. But I also learned about being hopeful when you've lost everything, choosing to trust even after you've been viciously hurt, and how when even just a few gather in hunger or mutual support or laughter, it's there. That's where it's gone. And so that's how it came to be that I marked the day I first walked into Rikers Island as the day I started walking back to the Catholic Church. Welcome to Tabardin, everybody. Fig community member Teresa. Welcome to Tabard In, y'all, a weekly podcast about the stories we tell and the events we discuss while on pilgrimage as queer Catholics. I'm Jacob Flores, baby Catholic and gay since those JC Penny catalogs were being sent to your home. Um, and I am definitely ready for this fall weather here in Texas. You are a gay womb to tomb. It's a, a good Catholic pro-life reference for you there. Uh, and I'm his fiance, Pat Goffman. I'm a lifelong Catholic, a gay bee, and I just finished watching the new Amazon series, Undone, and I have very strong feelings about it. Oh, seems like it. Yeah, it, and like good and bad. It's it's kind of, it's a hot mess of a show, but it's also really beautiful, and I enjoyed it. <sighs> Anyways, Jacob, what do we have on the podcast today? So up first, we'll take a look at an article discussing how fashion uh, is a powerful form of affirmation for many queer people. Um, then we'll take a look at the Amazon Synod, crazy racist shenanigans going on over there. Then we'll discuss what Dia de los Muertos can teach us about life. And as always, we'll close by toasting what inspired us most this week. That was a pretty good pronunciation of Dia de los Muertos. I'm impressed. I mean, my last name is Flores. I know. You've been practicing in the bedroom for the past five minutes. All right, so Sophia Baradibara wrote an article in the Huffington Post this week about how fashion can be a really powerful way for queer folks to express themselves in a way that's affirming of their identities, but also can be a real source of anxiety. She spoke with Anita Dolce Vita, the owner of queer fashion line Dapper Q, who describes her style as J. Crew Femme. She said, you should be able to choose what you want to wear and what makes you feel good and what affirms your identity. If you're a femme and you're coming out, maybe you like your style and coming out doesn't impact at all the way that you want to dress. Coming out is such a big undertaking. That's such a big obstacle. Now you can explore other parts of you that you could draw upon your style inspiration. You can have a deeper and more meaningful relationship with your own personal style. Big ups to her. And J. Crew Femme, that is Calling my name. <laughs> a big J. Crew <laughs> fanboy over here, huh? J. Crew. That's womb to tomb right there for me. <laughs> um, so 
good for her good for them i i love queer fashion it really just it screams in your face um it's expressive and honestly like it's 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 almost like a form of activism it's saying i'm here not necessarily i'm queer but i'm here deal with it this is who i am if you don't like it then sorry yeah and it's 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 noticeable it's something you know you're standing in line behind somebody waiting for your coffee or whether it's, you know, a friend expressing themselves in new ways and stuff like it's going to get noticed. I, I, I love the confidence. I love everything about it. I wish I had that much confidence, honestly. Yeah. But definitely this rings to club kids, theater kids from, you know, when I was in art school uh, and ballroom culture. Yeah, uh, definitely. Definitely. Um, and just in general, queer culture uh, overall really has uh not history but a, a very strong stance on expressing yourself via or by way of you know your dress or hairstyles um yeah why why is that help me understand why you think that kind of came to like that there was this strong outward kind of expression of a, a a deeper inner reality of of i feel you know different and i want to yeah. express it i don't want i'm tired of trying to just fit in why i mean i you know already you queer people already feel outside of the box as is internally um emotionally in their thoughts and uh being able to express that outwardly is is an is a like i said a form of activism and is a step of saying like this is who i am um, and I think it's it's a it's a way to cut away from the monotony, the homogeny, and uh, being boring. Honestly, I, but I, I dress boring. So, but but at least there's no there's no sense of prejudice or looking down on anybody who really you know does take that step and say like I am different and I really want to you know dress different and in a way that kind of expresses myself like you've got a, a huge amount of appreciation for it yeah definitely i mean and and here's the thing like that can be expressed your your queerness can be expressed in many different ways and it doesn't have to necessarily be your uh your queerness or your sexuality right for me uh dressing in a pair of khakis uh, uh blue oxford and some white sneakers that gives me confidence and what i love most about when i dress that way on pretty much every day um is I'm able to surprise people when they find out that I'm tatted up. I have the word banji tattooed on me and they realize that I really love trap music and you know, I could just keep going on, but it's just this weird dichotomy that people don't expect. And I love the surprise. Yeah. And it gives you confidence being able to fully embrace that. Yeah. And it's also kind of like, you know, I'm infiltrating you, your community or not. Okay. That sounds weird. Um, I'm I'm blending in, but also like I am very different from who you think that I am and from what you expect of me. And it definitely might be from, you know, growing up in a predominantly white neighborhood and fitting in and passing that way. That was my way of assimilating as a as an Asian American. But honestly, I've I've made it my own and it makes me feel confident. So I'm gonna keep doing it. And big up to to everybody else who dresses loudly and proudly yeah that's yeah, awesome um so uh pat when you came out did you find yourself expressing your way differently in the way you uh dress or in the way you styled what did that transition look like from a kazakh to being a big old gay cub or whatever you want to call yourself <laughs> 
Um, I'll be honest, I never really thought about how my clothes or sense of style were impacted by my sexuality before. Even even after coming out, I never stopped and had that moment of reflection of, you know, should this change how I am dressing or anything like that. Um, looking back on it now, like, yeah, there was a sense of maybe feeling more comfortable wearing shorter shorts or wearing a tighter shirt or something like that. Um, I never really saw it as experimenting. I think I was I was still emulating kind of like the straight models and the straight actors and stuff that I saw them being more comfortable in that type of clothing. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm not worried. I'm less worried about just being called out as being, you know, gay or something because of 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 shorter shorts. But I don't. I guess I don't have any strong desire to like change my my look or anything like that. Uh, I I feel fairly comfortable just being ignorant of 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 fashion and and i'm okay with that and but when i see queer folks really expressing themselves through their clothes uh uh it makes me feel good and i like i like seeing that out in society more i hope that we get to to see it a lot more and you can find sophia barrett ibarra's article on the huffington post So for our next topic, the Synod on the Amazon region is entering its final week and will conclude on October 27th. But traditionalist Catholics have continued to show their disdain for the Synod and the Pope who is leading it, including this weekend by desecrating it, a sacred image brought from the Amazon and placed on display in a church in Rome. A wooden statue of a pregnant woman, which the Vatican says represents life, fertility, and Mother Earth, was stolen by two men and thrown into the Tiber River. Footage of the desecration was posted to conservative Catholic blogs and quickly went viral. So some are claiming online that this was a pagan idol, uh, not just some you know generic pregnant woman or even representing the, the Virgin Mary. They claim that she is the Pachamama. But that theory was pretty quickly and obviously debunked because uh, the Pachamama is a goddess figure of the Incas and not the indigenous of uh, the Amazon region or anything like that. It does kind of bring up a bit of discussion of like what is enculturation and is that kind of healthy for the Catholic Church enculturation kind of being a uh, bringing in other people's cultures and what is healthy from them and then taking, you know, and kind of leaving out anything that doesn't fit with the Catholic faith. The existence or the bringing the statues into the church there was an accusation of syncretism that that came with it and syncretism is basically basically bringing in uh, non-traditional and, and non-Catholic elements into Catholicism, but stuff which uh, doesn't have any positivity, doesn't have any stuff that matches along with, with Catholic Church teaching, um, which is not the case with with uh, the the icon of that woman that was uh, placed in the tree or that was placed in the church. And certainly, the Catholic Church has lots of uh, history with uh, bringing in other traditions. Uh, and incorporating them into Catholicism, the tradition of the Christmas tree, uh, Easter eggs, even like the rosary is something like it's not as though there were no other religions that had the idea of praying a repetitious prayer on a beaded rope. Catholics did not just invent all of this stuff out of thin air. Like a lot of it was brought in from from other cultures and other traditions. and, And we found that it was able to fit really well with the Catholic Church. Honestly, it's just a bunch of very online Catholic guys who basically spend all day kind of commenting on blogs, and uh, they've claimed that there's some kind of you know modern day Saint Boniface because Saint Boniface smashed a bunch of pagan idols back in his day, but it's it's not really any of that. 
Cool. I don't I don't understand. I thought we were a universal church and I don't understand why a a wooden statue is so triggering for these people. It really like I said boils my blood. Simcha Fisher, a Catholic writer and not a very big fan of Pope Francis wrote, "Everyone wants to imitate Jesus and the one time he showed some temper with the whip in the temple. Dude, you're not Jesus. It's a much safer bet to imitate him in the other 99% of the gospels." Like when he preached the good news, when he fed his sheep, when he gave over his body, and when he fixed his eyes firmly on the Father and then told us to do the same. It's really easy to imitate outward actions. A saint did this, so I will too. But let me tell you, the real work that every Christian is compelled to do is interior work. And it's hard. And it doesn't get a lot of views on YouTube, but it's what will save your soul. Yeah, I mean, good on Simpson Fisher for calling out the non-Twitter accounts that are just like going crazy and pretending they're also brave for desecrating an icon that literally represents the sanctity of life. Like that's what that image represents. That's why it was brought all the way from the, the Amazon. Um, I don't know when your faith becomes basically just about conquering other religions. Like this is what you get this hyper-masculine view that says like, I have nothing to learn from anybody else. Like everybody else needs to learn from me or get out of the way or I will like, I'll throw you in the Tiber river. Many have pointed out how, like symbolic this basically is of of the entire way indigenous people have been treated and are still treated like it's colonial catholicism and it's still alive and well it's gross i'm sure these are the same people that would tear down a painting of a black jesus or a black saint augustine it's nationalistic it's very racist it's whitewashing yeah yeah uh yeah it's 2019 people uh, Cardinal Oswald Gracias, a representative from India and the only Asian representative at the Synod, he said that three major themes have emerged from the discussions and breakout groups at the Synod that should have pri- high priority in the final document that gets produced. He said the shortage of priests, climate change, and violence against indigenous people are like the three themes that have come out. So with the shortage of priests in the area, in the Amazon area, um, I was reading that they're possibly allowing for priests to also be married as well. Um, do you think that's going to have a lot of backlash? Yeah, honestly, that was kind of expected to be the biggest controversy going into the the synod was that there were discussions and uh, initial proposals to possibly allow married priests because there's just so few and so many Catholics in the Amazon region don't have access to uh, a priest. It's crazy that the whole synod has kind of been taken over by these kind of arch conservatives just focusing on the fact that there are indigenous people being represented and focused on it all. I think that it kind of is a possibility that uh, the church will allow married priests in the synod. It already allows uh, married priests when uh, it comes to Anglo-Catholic priests and, and other rites. And White so, dudes. Yeah, I mean, but it's it's been tossed out, the idea that they'll, they might even allow like a, a, a rite for the Amazon region that would possibly have some more creative solutions and, and creative liturgies that are, are, are unique to them. So hopefully that will be something that, that they'll be able to move forward with. That would be really exciting for the church. What's really interesting is that that is what's going to probably get more attention over the issues of climate change and uh, a violence against indigenous people. Right. Uh, which should be at the top. And which is being represented right here for why it's such a huge issue. Exactly. If you've seen the Pixar movie Coco, you know about Dia de los Muertos or the Day of the Dead. 
It's a yearly Mexican tradition that will begin next week, wherein family members visit the grave sites and set up an offering in their homes for their friends, family uh, who have died. Sonia Livingston wrote in America Magazine about her experience in New Mexico, witnessing the Day of the Dead recently after the passing of her brother. She wrote, Darkness and light are but one, the psalmist tells us. Our lives are filled with both, sugar and skulls, flowers and dust, love and loss. You cannot embrace one without allowing the other. This is what the Day of the Dead so powerfully illustrates. While families throughout Central America, Mexico, and increasingly the United States visit cemeteries and build magnificent ofrendas for their deceased and loved ones, Dia de los Muertos provides an offering to the living as well. Its traditions express a vital faith in human resurrection and communion with God and celebrate the continued possibility of hope, love, and connection even as the body returns to dust. Yeah, this article was so beautifully written, and it's a wonderful counterpoint to the racist bullshit that's going on in response to the Synod on the Amazon. Like, here we have a tradition which was originally indigenous and technically speaking, like a pagan ritual, but which the Catholics in Mexico were able to say, like, wait, just because it's indigenous doesn't make it evil. Like, what good is in there? What what can we keep with us as a tradition of our, our people and, and make sure that it, it's a piece of our faith as well. So they took out anything that didn't fit in with Catholic theology of what happens when we die and all that. And then they made it into like a Catholic holiday, like several days of, of Catholic holiday. And so like this, even this white lady, Sonia Livingston, like was able to go and experience it in New Mexico, in New Mexico and actually receive a lot of grace and healing around the death of her own brother instead of just like hating on it and being a total ass at um, so I took a class in college. Uh, it was called Death and Dying, uh, Perspective of Death in America. Yeah, I remember you taking that class. Um, it's interesting to see how uh, typically Americans in Western cultures uh, outside of Latin America and Central America uh, see death as a very scary thing. And I think, and not I think, but seeing people celebrate the dead uh, throughout Dia de los Muertos is really uh invigorating for me i i feel like there is a really strong beauty in venerating and respecting the dead and and res- just bringing them to life for this week yeah i think it's beautiful to be able to actually know that your loved ones are still with you mm-hmm. like it's it's a not only a, a sense of honoring and remembering them but actual communion with them like that sense of communion with the saints like all those Mm -hmm. who have have passed on um and and keeping them alive and with your family i think it's really really beautiful and you can find sonia livingston's article on the day of the dead in america magazine so what are we toasting this week jacob so this week I'm toasting affirming pastors of all faiths who continue to sow seeds of love. Um, so our friends are going to do the ceremony uh, for our wedding in February. Right. And it was, so last night we went and had dinner with them in Dallas and it was just such a funny, but uh, really beautiful thing when the kids were kind of just talking and mentioned our wedding and with excitement and referred to it as like your guys's wedding you two are getting married and it was it was nothing for them it was like it was natural for them and i i I find that just so beautiful yeah they were really excited for us they were jumping up and down and were uh counting down the days uh until our marriage 
Uh, this week I'm toasting my friend Tiffany and her husband Vaughn. Uh, we went to their wedding uh, this past week. I was in Honduras with Tiffany for two years as a missionary and she's just always been unfailingly supportive of me and I genuinely could not be happy for her. So cheers to Tiffany and to Vaughn and for all pastors who are out there doing the, the good work of, of making sure the next generation is brought up to be affirming and, and loving. All right, y'all, that's it for us. You can support the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash vineandfigco. Thanks for listening, y'all. Uh-